Father, we ask that you would meet us this morning as we open your word and we study it. Would you make sense of it to our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be soft and transformed into the likeness of your son? God, we pray that your spirit would comfort us where we need comfort, that your spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted to change, that you would move in and through us in our time together, that we would be different people as we interact with your word, as we sing, as we come to the table, as we pray. We need you to do it in and through us, and we ask that you would. We pray in your name. Amen. Um. I want to start with a question, and, and the question is, what's the longest line you've waited in for something? Many of us were at the fall festival, a time to connect, and that was just so fun yesterday. Those of you that were there, just to hang out and connect and just have a good time with each other, and um, we had a drink truck that came up about three o'clock, and man, from the time it pulled up to the time it left, I think at about five, there was just a consistent line of people, a long line. Um, but I didn't feel bad about waiting in line because it was like, I get to talk and interact with these people as I'm waiting. Um, and then I didn't get a drink. And then my son was waiting in line. He got a drink for me and I got in trouble. Like, oh, you don't have to wait in line. Your, your son can do it. Anyway, um, what's the longest line you've waited for something. Maybe it's on a ride. Maybe it's at an airport. You're waiting for a plane that's delayed. Maybe it's for a product that you're waiting to buy at a store. Uh, we're not good at waiting uh, in our culture. It, we're kind of allergic to it, right? E even the idea of like, I get frustrated when Amazon Prime doesn't get me my package in one day. We can order anything we want almost in the world, and it just comes to our door without any effort from us other than clicking a button, paying for it. That's crazy. We live like kings in our culture. And so what's become of that is we're just, we're not good at being patient. We're not good at waiting. The longest line I ever waited in for something, maybe apart from an airplane, because that seems to happen often to me, um, is in 2008, there was a reboot of the show American Gladiators. I don't know, guys, if you're familiar with that show, it was a show in the 80s and 90s, and it was like typical people against these like really strong athletes doing these events, these crazy events, and they rebooted the show in 2008, and so there was an open call for anybody to try out for American Gladiators. So I was like, this is my chance. <laughs> I've been waiting. I grew up watching the show with my brother. We loved it. Uh, I was living in Tucson at the time, working with athletes. My brother was up here in Phoenix, and he goes, dude, there's an open call this weekend. You need to get up here. We're going to do this. So a couple buddies, we drove up, stayed at the night at some friend's house. My, brother's, my brother met me there. It was in Tempe. And it was at some like 24-hour fitness, like, you know, LA Fitness. It was a small gym. You're going like, there's got to be a better way to do this. So uh, you had to fill out this application. And it was, it was just wild because it's like 60 pages to fill out this application. One question was like, draw self-portrait. It, it was just like, they're just looking for like, really interesting, interesting people for the sake of television, you know? And so we fill all this stuff out. The directions are very, very clear in the application. Do not show up before 8 o'clock. If you show up before 8 a.m., you will not be into, you, you won't be able to get into the room. I don't want you showing up before then. So me and my buddies, we're going to meet my brother at the, at the gym, and it's like 7.50, and he calls me in a panic. Where are you? I was like, dude, you can't line up until eight. He goes, nobody pays attention to those rules. The line's halfway around the building. So we show up, he holds our spot, we get in line, and we're waiting. 
Now, this was like right when smartphones begin to came out, come out in, in 2008. So nobody was like just sitting there streaming something, watching. Like you're just sitting in line. And so the line's like, it doesn't feel like too far. It's like, okay, this is maybe going to take maybe an hour, depending on how quickly they move it. So we're in an hour waiting in this line. And then once you're in an hour, it's like, well, we're already invested. We're going to stay here. And this is, this is my moment. This is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Wait until they see me do pull-ups, right, or whatever. You know, like the, the test was really good. It's like how many pull-ups can you do in a minute? How fast can you run? And then they sit you down and interview you. Like, are you weird enough to be on TV? I feel like I was, but I didn't get picked. I didn't get picked. Um, but all that to say, we're waiting in line about an hour, and then all of a sudden, it's two hours. All of a sudden, it's three hours. And we're like, well, we're definitely waiting to get it now. Eight hours later. We stood in line for eight hours and just sat there, got up, moved down, made friends with the people that were next to us. It's like, why are you here? I'm definitely going to beat you. And that, you know, like, it, it was just very, very bizarre. Eight-hour line. What's the longest you've waited in a specific place? Maybe some of you that are pregnant, you're, you know, you're, it's like nine months. Like, this is long enough from waiting for something to happen, and it's not happened yet. Even though waiting eight hours for a 30-second trial run of American Gladiators that I didn't, that I didn't, I didn't I'm not on TV, um, even though that was frustrating, it's, it's, it's nothing compared to waiting for Jonathan to get out of prison, right? Even in the midst of us praying and having conversations and getting phone calls from Jefferson County Prison, he got re- he, he, his case got overturned in March, because there was a Brady violation is the, is the technical term. There was, there was a, a, a partial fingerprint at the scene that did not belong to the victim or to Jonathan, and the lawyers withheld it, state withheld it. That's not okay. And so of that evidence is some of the reason why his case got overturned. It gets overturned in a courtroom in March. He doesn't walk out of prison until July because of all the hoops that had to be jumped through. And it's like, you just said this guy's free, but he's still having to be in here, not only 23 years, but several months after the fact that you said he was free. And it's interesting, when we look at our text in chapter one, uh, verse one of chapter 15, we read it, just look at it again, again. Uh, John is saying this, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, And he says, seven angels, seven plagues, which is the last, which of the wrath of God is finished. Why does John describe the wrath of God as great and amazing? Feels like he would go, this is not great and amazing. This is, this is, and the details we're going to see, it's like, oh, this is really tragic. The reason he's describing it as great and amazing is because he's answering a question we saw earlier in the letter, earlier in the book, in chapter six, of the martyrs, the people that have walked with Jesus and died for their faith. What is their cry? That is a cry of the Bible. We see it in Psalm, all over the place. We see it in the Old Testament is this. How long? God, how long are you gonna let this happen? I'm seeing injustice. I know you're good, and I know you can fix it. You have the power to fix it. Why are you letting it still happen? How long? until you intervene. And all of us are trying to figure out that question in our lives. If we're honest with ourselves, God, how long are you gonna let this happen? If you're good and you're in control, like, and we see this injustice taking place even to us or to other people, like, how long is this going to last? And even in the midst of our own lives, we, we see this on various levels. It doesn't have to be as extreme as Jonathan's situation, but like, God, how long are you going to let this cancer still be here? 
Like, how long am I going to be single? I, I desire a spouse, but I don't have any blips on the radar. Like I, and I keep dating people, and it keeps not. Like, how long is this going to happen? And some of you are married, you're going, how long until we can have kids? We're in the midst of this, and we, we, we're infertile, and we can't have children. How long are you letting this happen, God? We know you're the creator of life. Why can't we get pregnant? And some of you are parents. Your children aren't walking with Jesus, and you are, and you go, how long? God, how long are you going to let this happen? You see your heart breaking for the decisions your children are making, and you go, how, God, would you rescue them? How long are you going to let that happen? How long do I have to be under this boss that I don't like in this job? God, how long am I going to be stuck in the desert? How long? Will this dysfunction relationship continue? Like, man, I think, I'm, I think we're trying to figure things out and trying to get over. And then like we have another interaction and I just go, oh, it's back to square one. God, how long is your praying and seeking help in the midst of the hard things in your life? How long will this continue? How long will the broken friendship give me hurt? God, you can comfort it, you can fix it, you can change it. Why aren't you doing it? How long are you going to let this happen? How long am I going to be lonely? God, how long am I going to feel anxious? That just it visits on me. I don't want it to happen, but just it, it's like a wave crashing on my heart and my mind. Like, how long until you fix that? Because I know you can, I know you're good. How long are you going to do something? How, how long until you show up? And Eugene Peterson talking about these, these chapters that we're going to jump into in a minute and talking about when we see injustice happening in the world, whether it's to us or to other people, he says it, it, it makes our desire for judgment develop and our frustration of delay deepens, right? We start to get callous and frustrated and angry at times. What? The coming chapters are going to give to us, starting in chapter 15 and going really through chapter 20 as we look at the judgment of God. We see pockets of it as we looked at Revelation in the seven seals and the seven trumpets. Now we're going to see final judgment in the seven bowls answers that question. It doesn't give us in, uh, a delivery date of when God is going to execute uh, making all things right before he makes all things new, but it gives us a promise to say God's not going to let this happen for the long haul. Keep trusting that I'm going to make all things right. And that's the promise we're going to get as we look at the text this morning. And again, just to review, we've been in the book of Revelation. This is week nine of 12 weeks. We have a couple more weeks as we round out all the way through chapter 22, the entirety of the book. We've been looking at it kind of thematically in the context, and, and where we've been in the, in the last turn is we saw those judgment of the seals and the trumpets, and then John took a, a step back for a second in chapters 12, 13, and 14 to say, hey, this is what's going on. This is the reality that we often don't see, but it's actually happening. And in chapter 12, we saw this cosmic battle that was taking place between Satan, the enemy, the dragon, as Revelation describes him, and 
Jesus, the lamb, the slain lamb, and his followers. That there's a cosmic battle happening that we better pay attention to. And then in chapter 13, we saw how um, not only is there a cosmic battle, but there's an earthly battle that the enemy gives uh, influence and authority to these two beasts. And in the midst of it, that's how it translates into our reality of the way we're walking in earth right now. And then we saw last week in chapter 14, how do I, in the midst of living in a broken world, in the midst of uh, living in an influence of the enemy, how I withstand the undercurrent of the enemy? How do I stand up for what is right in the midst of suffering and persecution and a world that doesn't go the way of Jesus? And then what we're going to see starting in chapter 15 today is this judgment, this final judgment that God is going to make all things right. So let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 15. I'm going to read all of chapter 15, give some commentary on it, and then I'm going to summarize chapter 16 just for for sake of time, and then we're going to look at, like, how does this fit into the story of all the biblical story, this final day of judgment? Like, why does it even matter for us, and how does it give us a promise and a hope when we're asking the question, Lord, how long are you going to let this still happen? And then we'll talk about what that looks like practically for us. So this is chapter um, 15, starting in verse 1. It says this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. From with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image of the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps and gods in their hands. Just real quick, that that image of a sea of glass, we've talked about this before, we'll see it at the end of the book too, that the sea represented chaos to the original readers. It was dark and it was scary and, and even when you see Jesus come onto the scene and calm the sea, it's saying like, God is going to calm the chaos. We'll even see in chapter 22 where it says the sea will be no more. It doesn't mean in the new earth we won't have the beach. That would be terrible. It means that the chaos is now turned into order. So even in this imagery, when it's talking about this judgment that God is making the sea like glass, the chaos is going away. Verse 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For all, uh, excuse me, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. As we look at verse 3, the song of Moses, again, to the original readers, we talked about how Revelation is a confusing book because the language is pocketed in this apocalyptic genre, this revelation genre, saying, man, God is revealing something, and John is using strong language, strong symbolism to wake us up to something true. And he's pulling from Jewish Old Testament literature that we're not familiar with because we don't sit and study our Old Testament as we should. And so in the midst of this, this, this idea of the song of Moses is, again, it's a direct point in, uh, of the Exodus, which was the gospel of God's people. They're in slavery, and God rescues them from Egypt. He parts the Red Sea, and they walk through it. And then what do they do in Exodus 15 right as they're rescued? They sing a song, which is what this is referring to, this idea that when God brings final judgment, we will worship him 
because of who he is and how he's crushed our enemies. All those things we talked about, how long, how long? There will be a day we won't say that anymore. And we ought to worship God because of that. Verse five. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. We saw in chapter one that Jesus, this image of Jesus wears this golden sash. This is saying this, these angels represent him and his righteousness. Verse seven, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke and the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. He goes on in chapter 16 to talk about these seven bowls of the wrath of God getting poured out onto the wicked in the midst of this judgment. And the first five are, are similar to what we saw in the trumpets, that they're mirroring the, the plagues of Egypt, God's justice and his uh, uh, wrath poured out to say, my people aren't going to live this way anymore. I'm going to rescue them. Interesting enough, as you look in chapter 16 of your Bible, if you're following along, we see in chapter, or, or excuse me, verse 9 and verse 11, out of the fourth bowl poured out and the fifth bowl, uh, bowl poured out, that people don't repent. They don't repent even though God's going like, this is not good for you. Their hearts are hard, similar to Pharaoh's in the Exodus story. The sixth bowl is poured out starting in verse 12. And what it says in the text is the great Euphrates River and its water gets dried up as a way to prepare for this final battle, and the final battle between the enemy, and we see this uh, unholy spirit, kind of this unholy trinity of Satan and the beast and the false prophet, and this imagery of them calling out to the people, basically like demons, let's assemble, we're going to have this final battle against God and his army. And then we see, starting in verse 17, the seventh bowl gets pulled uh, poured out, verse 17 says, the seven, uh, seventh angel poured out the bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of the throne saying, it is done. It's done. In the midst of us trying to figure out like, God, how long are you gonna let this happen? Like, when are you gonna make all things right? Like, I'm, I'm desiring, like, I'm, I'm feeling this pain, I'm feeling this injustice. When are you going to solve it? I came across um, a video from the Bible Project. With the, the, that team is just so, so helpful in understanding uh, the holistic idea of the storyline of the Bible. And they have a specific video that deals with this day of the Lord, this idea of Armageddon that we see in the back end of chapter 16. What does it actually mean in the full scope of the Bible. So we're going to watch this five-minute video that I think will help frame our understanding of why this is so important, this idea. So let's go ahead and watch this now. The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world. Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down? So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book, 
When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world, and then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf. But the humans are tempted by this mysterious, unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place. Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results. Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power. It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel. Everyone comes together to elevate themselves to the place of God. And God knows how devastating this could be, a whole culture redefining good and evil as if they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them. Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God. And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt. Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest. And this is really evil. Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward, and he's swallowed up by death. Now, after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil. And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day. The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system. And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb. It's called Passover. Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies. So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day again to save Israel from new threats. Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos. He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel, that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies, and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also redefined good and evil for themselves, resulting in corruption and violence. So God's people have become like Babylon. The oppressed become oppressors. Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape. And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They're conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires. This is the story Jesus was born into. Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome. So, is Jesus going to confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel. All humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest. But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him, using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. 
When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power, this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well, and we keep building new versions of Babylon. Right, and so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world. Yeah, this is it, Armageddon, final judgment. How is Jesus going to finish off evil? Well, it's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloodied before the battle even starts. Pre-bloodied? That's a strange image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and bring about the new thing that he has in store. Thanks for watching. Thanks, guys. Isn't that helpful? Seeing the full understanding of what the day of the Lord and judgment actually promises us in the full scope of the story of the Bible. So what does it mean for us as we kind of wrap up and close this time going like, if there is a day of the Lord, which we believe there is, we see in the text here clearly, what does that mean for us today? If it's far off in the future, or who knows how long it is in the future, how does it change the way we live today? Here's how, as followers of the Lamb, those that have given their life to Jesus, bowed your knee to him, you've exchanged your life for his, and you're covered now by the protection of the blood of the Lamb. As followers of the Lamb, judgment is not on us. Here's what I mean by on us. We'll talk about that we're not going to experience it the way that we see the rest of the world experiencing in chapter 16, but it also means it's not our responsibility. It's God's. And for me, that's when it's really helpful to understand that it's not on us to execute judgment on others. That's actually God's job. And we see that in Romans chapter 12, to not repay evil for evil, but leave room for God's vengeance to come on others. This is how Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice over those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That means being prideful. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Man, I don't know about you, but when I see injustice happening or I experience something wrong that's happening to me, my first step is go, I'm going to fix this. Like, I'm going to step up and I'm going to move into the gap and like, this is wrong, I'm going to make it right instead of, do I stop, do I pray, and do I go, God, what are you doing? And do I leave space for God to be the one to execute judgment? 
man, because I'm not good at waiting, I'm impatient, I see injustice happening, and so I think it's my job to step into that space and to fix something, and again, especially when it's done wrong to me. When you look at the life of Jesus, do you know when he gets angry, which he does get angry, but he doesn't sin, it's never about stuff directly aimed at him. Isn't that interesting? He gets angry when there's injustice in other places with other people. But when people lob certain things at him, say certain things at him, accuse him, he doesn't push back. But what does he do? He leaves space and he trusts his father in the midst of the injustice happening to him. So the first thing for us to be reminded of as we walk out of these doors is that uh, as we are followers of the Lamb, those who have committed their life to Jesus, uh, judgment is not on us. It is not our job to execute that on other people. We're supposed to leave space and allow God to do that. The other idea of this is that judgment is not on us, is that just like we don't have to execute judgment of others, that we will not ex- uh, experience the judgment that we see happening in chapter 16. And some of us still feel like, even if we've given our life to Christ, that we still have to play this game where I have to do more good than bad. And that's the reason that God is pleased or unpleased with me. Instead of realizing that if you've given your life to Christ, that just like the people in the Passover in Exodus, and and God tells them, hey, take this lamb, this perfect lamb, sacrifice it. I want you to put the blood on your doorpost. And as you do that, that is your protection as the angel of death, God's wrath, comes in and destroys the firstborn in consequence of the wickedness happening, you are protected. And some of us have given our life to Christ, like we're painting that doorpost, but then we step outside and we go, no, I have to do all the right things for God to be happy with me, for God to be pleased with me. Now, we have to realize that if we've given our life to Christ, that that judgment is not coming on us. It came on Jesus full on the cross. Even the language here that's saying this last seventh bowl that's poured out, what does it say? It is done. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. My sin, my past sin, my present sin, my future sin. Do you know it's totally accounted for for what Jesus has done on the cross? Now that doesn't make me want to sin more. As Paul says, like, should I continue to sin so grace would abound? Like, no, like that, that should change my attitude to realize I am protected But here's the thing. We don't want to confuse protection and correction. We're protected by the blood of the Lamb, if you've given your life to Christ, from judgment. But God still comes in and he says, hey, I want to correct your behavior. I want to help you make things right. When you do see injustice, it doesn't mean you sit back and and waiting for the Lord to take vengeance. It doesn't mean you just go, you don't do anything. We're called as lights and dark places to step in with love and go, God, how do you want me to step into this wrong that I see? It was right for Maya to step into Jonathan's case and say, this isn't okay, this isn't right. But she did it with prayer, she did it with the scripture, she did it in a kind way. It wasn't just because this is wrong and she wanted to do it on her own. And so for us, we need to realize that even if we have protection, correction is actually a good thing. That God says in the Bible that he disciplines those he loves. And so some of us go like, well, I'm protected, I can do whatever I want. It's like, Well, no, like there's correction. The spirit convicts you and changes you and says, this is actually the way to walk with Jesus. And we even see it in the letter in chapter two and chapter three. Jesus is saying to these churches, hey, I see the good things happening, but you need some correction. You're getting swallowed up by the enemy, by the ways of the culture, and this isn't my way. And so you need to learn and be corrected to change. 
And so for us, as we walk out of these doors and we experience life and we experience injustice and the brokenness of our world, would we pray before we act? And then we go, God, what do you want me to step into? And would I trust you in that? Because I know for me, I just get impatient. And my first step is typically not to pray. It's to do something. And again, doing something isn't wrong, but we need to understand and trust the Spirit and His work in us because we can either have judgment on our own or we can let God deal with what He needs to deal with. What do we do with the injustice that we see all around us? Here's the last thing as we close. Here's what I do when I see that stuff. Here's what we need to do. We need to do these things. We need to worship. We need to plead. We need to pray. And we need to wait. When you experience injustice in your own life, whether it's a personal relationship or that list that I read, how long, Lord, are you gonna let this happen? Do we have a heart and a posture of worship just like we see God's people doing as he executes justice? Do we come into this space and do we sing the things that we want to be true of us through Christ? Do we worship him? Do we plead? Do we go, God, do we get on our face? Do we get on our knees and go, God, would you change this? I can't do it without you. Do we pray in that spirit to go, God, you need to be the one doing it. I don't want to jump ahead of your timeline. I want to trust you even when it's painful. And then we wait, which again is something we're allergic to in our culture. And the Bible says it time and time and time again. Those who wait on the Lord, he'll renew their strength. There's an active waiting that we can be involved in as we depend on God to change us. We wait on the day of the Lord as he makes all things right before he's gonna make all things new. And some of the ways we do that, even in our response this morning, is our response every week of what we do. As we worship, we sing what's true in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our cry, how long, O oh Lord, we continue to sing. And we continue to trust him for what he is doing, that he's sovereign, that he's in control, that he knows and we don't. That's the posture of dependency. So we're going to continue to sing as we respond in a minute. We plead and we pray. We want our time and our space together, not only on Sundays, but throughout our weeks to be a place that is uh, birthed in prayer. And so we have a prayer space to the side that we would just invite you to go into. If you just need some time with the Lord and you're struggling with the, how long is this going to happen? Would you write it down on a card? Would you put it on the wall just as an offering to get, God, I want to trust you with this. I don't want to do it on my own. I want to see you work and I'll keep praying until something changes. Not in a way to control God, but to help your posture change of your own heart. So we're going to worship, we're going to pray. And then one of the ways we wait in the midst of injustice is we remember. We walk down to this bread and this cup and we say we know the promise is true because there's no one in the grave. He's not there. He's risen. And any other religion will say, ah, you got to do this. You gotta. No, we go, no, 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 no. Jesus is not there anymore. He's beat death. He's used that to rescue us. And now we have a freedom and a remembrance as we come down and we wait and we're in the midst of our suffering. We go, God, I don't know if I can do this again. And he goes, I did it all the way to the cross. Trust me 
Trust my spirit. It's not you working it out. It's not you taking another step. Use the power I've given you in the Holy Spirit to take the next step. And we remember Jesus' sacrifice, his perfect, loving life and death for us. And it lets us take one more step. And we do that over and over and over again, either till we're with him face to face or till he comes back. So we're going to do that in the midst of our time together. And hopefully it just doesn't go in one ear and out the other, but we translate this to our lives, to our everyday realizations of suffering, injustices that we see every single day. That we would worship, we would plead with God, we pray, and then we wait. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, would you help us this morning in the midst of our question of how long? How long are you going to let evil reign? How long are you going to let injustices remain when they're so clear to us? Would you give us the faith to trust in your timing and not in our own? And in the midst of that trust, would you change us? Change change us into the patience that you produce, into the love that you call us to. Would you help us be reminded of that as we sing, as we pray? As we make our way to the table, we ask that you would do it for us this morning. We pray in your son's name. Amen.